the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to sharing a conversation with uh, Dr. Matthew Dodd. He's executive director of Blessers of Israel. We're going to talk about who the enemies of Israel are and why that's important. That's coming up later this hour. We'll also hear from Lauren McAfee, co-editor of Created in the Image of God, Applications and Implications for Our Cultural Confusion. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, terror has been a threat to Americans for decades. We just passed the 40th anniversary of the Beirut bombing of a U.S. Marine barracks that killed 307 people, including 241 Americans. To name but a few other attacks, there was the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, the 1998 embassy bombings, the 2000 bombing of the USS Cole, and of course, 9-11-2001. FBI Director Christopher Wray told Congress on Tuesday that the threat is elevated once again. Quoting, The reality is that terrorism threat has been elevated throughout 2023, he told the Senate Homeland Security Committee. But the ongoing war in the Middle East has raised the threat of an attack against Americans in the United States to a whole other level, end quote. He went on, we assess that the actions of Hamas and its allies will serve as an inspiration, the likes of which we haven't seen since ISIS launched its so-called caliphate several years ago. In just the past few weeks, multiple foreign terrorist organizations have called for attacks against Americans and the West, he added. We also cannot do, cannot and do not discount the possibility that Hamas or another foreign terrorist organization may exploit the current conflict to conduct attacks here on our own soil. Close quote. Note that among the roughly 1,400 innocents murdered um, by Hamas, jihadists backed and trained by Iran attack in Israel on October 7th were 33 Americans. That makes it one of the deadliest terror attacks for Americans in history. Political analyst Charles Cook points out, if, as Secretary of State Anthony Blinken suggests, another 10 Americans remain captive in Gaza, then the attack of October 7th was also, is also, one of the worst hostage situations for Americans on record. So, yeah, you could say the terror threat is elevated. Well, as for Ray's testimony, there are a couple of problems to note. One is Ray himself and other intelligence leaders that there haven't been more jihadist attacks against Americans or on American soil is in large measure to credit the um, vigilance of the good men and women of the FBI and other U.S. counterterrorism agents. Yet beginning with the um, Obama administration and continuing through the current administration, U.S. intelligence has sometimes been weaponized against American citizens for the crime of supporting the wrong political party, politician or policy. If a terrorist slips through the cracks and kills Americans, part of the reason may be that distractions with the wrong extremists. Another major problem is um, the administration's obsession with Islamophobia. The president and his underlings 
always manage to inject that uh, word into any conversation that addresses the alarming rise of anti-Semitism at home and around the world. Now, to their credit, they have continued to stand firm, rejecting the notion of anti-Semitism, but fall short when it comes to actually holding those accountable for expressing it in violent ways accountable. That isn't to say it's not reprehensible to attack a person because they're Muslim. It is. Criminal behavior should be punished accordingly. But it is to say that conflating those rare crimes with the far more widespread problems of uh, terrorism or anti-Semitic hate crimes is to a few illegal border crossers from Canada on the same level as the total crisis at the southern border. Well, there's much more that could be said, but it is rather sobering to consider that we have reached, according to the uh, Secretary Ray, a whole other level of terrorist threat. Now, if you're looking for reasons to be on your knees in prayer, it uh, not only for the safety and protection of Americans and others uh, around the world, but uh, also for opportunities as the fear uh, and the threat increases to share the source of genuine and lasting peace, even in the midst of challenging circumstances. Well, after two years that have included the Russian invasion of Ukraine and now the war between Hamas and Israel, the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan and subsequent takeover by the Taliban has largely faded from the limelight. Shockingly, immediately following the fall of Kabul from August of 2021 to September of last year, the U.S. sent more than $1.1 billion in humanitarian assistance to Taliban-ruled Afghanistan via the State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development. Now, the Taliban is repaying this generosity by now aligning itself with America's greatest strategic competitor, China. Now, this shouldn't be shocking or even surprising. China was one of the first countries to grant the Taliban de facto recognition as the successor government of the American-backed Islamic Republic of Afghanistan that fell in 2021. And in September, China became the first country to appoint an ambassador since that takeover. In October, the Taliban began proceedings to strengthen that relationship by requesting to participate in the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor and the Belt and Road Initiative. The Belt and Road Initiative is China's global infrastructure development project, which many analysts think is intended to reorient trade away from the West and toward China. In exchange for natural resources, China builds a new Silk Road through these countries, providing roads, power plants, Internet service and other infrastructure to which these nations will and are beholden. The China-Pakistan Economic Corridor is the flagship operation of the Belt and Road Initiative and spent roughly $62 billion since 2015 to improve Pakistan's transportation networks and energy projects, including a superhighway meant to link the port of Gwadar with China and bypass the Indian Ocean for China's energy needs. Well, Afghanistan's vast lithium deposits will become available for development by China, which will only exacerbate the chokehold China has on critical uh, minerals necessary for the functioning of the Obama administration's various green energy projects. A standard electric vehicle's 1,000-pound battery includes 25 pounds of lithium, for example, and China processes or processes um, 60% of the planet's lithium. China's uh, mining companies are investing heavily in Afghanistan, including uh, the copper mines there. And the Taliban's acting minister of commerce and industry recently traveled to Beijing to continue discussions. Belt and Road Initiative programs allow China to exert its influence around the world, but economically and militarily as well. 
Chinese companies are all tied to the government in Beijing by the very nature of the Chinese economic and political system, and Beijing leverages its economic clout for political and military purposes. Now, if China builds a port, for example, its warships get preferential treatment, and it begins to leverage its investment to influence the voting patterns of the host nation at the United Nations. China has built a permanent naval base in Djibouti, and U.S. defense officials have raised concerns that the Chinese are also looking to establish a base on the Atlantic Equatorial Guinea. Uh, Chinese investors and construction companies go first, and Chinese diplomats and soldiers follow. And now Chinese investors are moving into the country the United States just spent 20 years occupying, a country we spent more than $2 trillion trying to build up. And from 20, or rather 2001 to 2021, even worse, 13 American service members were killed by a suicide bomber who had been released from prison by the Taliban at the Abbey Gate outside Kabul's Hamid Karzai International Airport as the withdrawal was unfolding and thousands of American service members died in Afghanistan at the hand of the Taliban over 20 years following 9-11. Well, the pattern doesn't stop there, sadly. The Taliban has been selling the weapons left behind in Afghanistan, excuse me, to buyers abroad. And some have already turned up in Gaza. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming later this hour, a conversation with Dr. Matthew Dodd. He's executive director of Blessers of Israel. We're going to talk about the enemies of Israel and what that might mean. As we look at scripture, that's coming up later this hour. And in the second hour, Lauren McAfee, co-editor of Created in the Image of God, Applications and Implications for Our Cultural Confusion. That's coming up later on the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Ivy League student who allegedly made threats of a mass shooting and anti-Semitism violence at Cornell University has been criminally charged. Court documents show that 21-year-old Patrick Dye, a junior at Cornell, had been federally charged in connection with the threats following an investigation by the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Dye is currently being questioned by law enforcement. Cornell University administrators dispatched campus police to a Jewish center after threatening statements appeared on a discussion board on Sunday. Reports state that Dye posted threats to shoot up a multicultural dining room on campus and also called for the deaths of Jewish people and threatened to bring an assault rifle to campus. If convicted, prosecutors say Dye faces a maximum sentence of five years in prison, a fine of up to $250,000, and a term of supervised release of up to three years. He's expected to be arraigned on Wednesday in federal court in Syracuse. FBI Director Christopher Wray was silent on Tuesday when questioned over whether the country is safer since the president took office. Is the United States safer from foreign terror threats today? Are we safer than when Joe Biden took office from the day he took office? Senator Rick Scott asked Wray during a Senate Homeland Security Committee hearing. Wray took an extended pause, sitting silently and appearing to be in a deep thought before finally answering. What I would say to you is that the terror threats have elevated, but I also think there are a lot of things the country has done throughout law enforcement to be better prepared to deal with them. Well, during the hearing, Ray warned that the threat of a terror attack against Americans has been raised to a whole nother level. Speaker Mike Johnson is warning that the House and Senate could be in an impasse on government funding if the Democrat-controlled chamber tries to force the House GOP to bring dense multi-subject spending bills to the House floor. 
We've uh, sent appropriations bills over to the Senate, and they have done nothing with them. Ultimately, we're going to be in a conference committee working out final agreements and all these things. But we are hopeful that the Senate will do their job, Johnson said in an interview. The House has passed five of the 12 individual spending bills that together will fund the government in the next fiscal year. They're slated to consider three more this week. None have come for a vote in the Senate, where Democrats have lambasted Republicans for writing spending bills at a lower level than what was agreed to under the bipartisan debt limit deal. However, Senate appropriators announced a bipartisan deal last week to combine three spending bills into a minibus. House Homeland Security Committee Chairman Mark Green subpoenaed Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas this week for his agency's wholly inadequate response to requests for records related to the panel's investigation into the vetting process of individuals who entered the United States after the administration's withdrawal from Afghanistan. Green, a Republican out of Tennessee, issued the subpoena earlier this week, saying the Department of Homeland Security failed to provide satisfactory documents and other materials relevant to its probe. Well, in October, DHS did provide the committee more than 1,600 pages related to Afghan evacuees, but Green said the documents provided in early October were either wholly redacted, devoid of content, or illegible. Some, he added, were in a format that made them indecipherable. Green added that information was also provided in the password-protected manner, which prohibited committee lawmakers and investigators from sorting or reviewing the material properly. Well, Democratic Representative Dean Phillips, who's primary challenging um, President Biden, is pushing back against criticism from top Biden ally that he's being disrespectful to black people. So choosing to run against the president is disrespectful to black people. And the moderate three-term congressman from Minnesota who launched his 2024 White House run last week charged that those who are attacking him are fueling a political conversation that's dividing the country right now. But Phillips' comments on Tuesday triggered a new round of incoming fire from allies of the president. Hours after he formally declared his candidacy on Friday in New Hampshire after filing to place his name on the ballot in the state that's held the first in the nation presidential primary for a century, longtime Democratic Representative Jim Clyburn of South Carolina took aim at Phillips for campaigning in the Granite State. South Carolinans have demonstrated for decades that we are good predictors of great presidential candidates. Apparently, Dean Phillips disagrees, Clyburn, a co-chair of the Biden re-election campaign, charged. He's not respecting the wishes of the titular head of our party and the loyalties of some of our party's most reliable constituents. Well, the president nearly a year ago proposed a nominating calendar for the 2024 election cycle that booted New Hampshire from its traditional leadoff primary position and replaced it with South Carolina, a much more diverse state where black voters play an outsized role in Democratic politics. Well, President Biden came in a dismal fifth in the 2020 New Hampshire primary. Of course, he was candidate Biden then. But a few weeks later, won South Carolina in a landslide, thanks in part to the support of Clyburn in the final stretch ahead of the contest. Well, the victory boosted the then former vice president toward the Democratic nomination and eventually the White House. Well, the Democratic National Committee earlier this year overwhelmingly approved the calendar change proposed by the president. But New Hampshire is on course to leapfrog South Carolina as it honors a longtime state law that mandates the state holds the first primary. With the state on course to hold an 
unsanctioned Democratic contest, the president's reelection campaign last week announced that Biden wouldn't file to place his name on the New Hampshire ballot. But Phillips is campaigning in New Hampshire, which irked Clyburn and another top black supporter of Biden, longtime Representative Benny Thompson of Mississippi. Black voters are an essential piece of the Democratic coalition, and any candidate for president of the United States ought to know and respect their, their pivotal role in how Democrats win national elections, Clyburn argued. Asked about the criticism from Clyburn, Phillips said, he was disappointed. Mr. Clyburn, a man I admire and respect, knows better. And that's exactly the political conversation that's dividing the country right now. Now, you could also argue that um, Mr. Biden is depriving uh, others of holding that position or running uh, for president, given the fact that he has dethroned many who would fall in the minority category in a number of, uh, of areas. In other news, the Supreme Court on Wednesday will hear arguments over whether the parent and uh, the patent, rather, and trademark office violated the First Amendment when it refused the registration of a political slogan on T-shirts that criticized former President Donald Trump without his consent. At the heart of the case is the question of when First Amendment protections end and the right to privacy begin when a trademark contains criticism of a government official or public figure. In 2017, Steve Elster, a a politically active Democrat attorney in California, he wanted to get the phrase Trump too small printed on T-shirts to sell. The phrase originated from an exchange in the 2016 debate stage between Trump and Senator Ruby. The Florida senator made a crude joke in reference to the size of the former president's hands. But when Elster, he sought to trademark the slogan, he was denied the uh, by the PTO and the trademark and trial appeal board upheld the decision because the mark identified Trump without his consent. The decision was reversed by a federal circuit court noting that Elster's trademark goes to the heart of the First Amendment and held that the government has no plausible interest in restricting speech critical of government officials or public figures in the trademark context. Well, the Justice Department, arguing on behalf of the Undersecretary of Commerce for Intellectual Property, eventually appealed the case up to the Supreme Court, arguing that the uh, the case, the Lanham Act, which is a federal statute aimed at protecting intellectual property and trademark designations, gives the PTO cons- uh, constitutional authority to block the trademark request. The court will take it up and we'll follow the story. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, a conversation with Dr. Matthew Dodd, Executive Director of Blessers of Israel. We'll take a look at who the enemies of Israel are and that UN Security Council vote taken earlier I believe the last part of uh, last week. Anyway, we'll talk with him about that. And also Lauren McAfee, co-editor of Created in the Image of God, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Cornell Jewish students described still feeling terrified after threats from a self-identified Hamas fighter led to the arrest of the suspect from the student body in interviews. On Tuesday, the um, Department of Justice announced it had a suspect, 21-year-old Patrick Dye, I mentioned earlier in the program, uh, who is a junior at Cornell. Court documents show numerous posts alleging the allegedly made by Dai, where he um, used usernames like Hamas fighter, Jew evil, and glorious Hamas. Cornell student um, Natanel Sapira said that the threat is both scary and sad that a member of our own campus community could be so hateful. To see that a student believes and was willing to make comments such as these shows that Jew hatred can be anywhere and everywhere, even among our fellow students. 
He added it was scary to think that people around you, especially at an Ivy League school, people take pride in being well-educated and knowing the facts of what's going on and are believing in that. Just no words, he went on to say. Another student, Amanda Silberstein, she criticized the university's professors for peddling what she believed was propaganda against Israel in response to the arrest. She said it was terrifying to be on campus right now. Upon discovering that the suspect was, in fact, a fellow student at Cornell, rather than an, an anonymous individual unaffiliated with the university, the situation took on a heightened sense of reality. It's a stark acknowledgement that harmful ideologies and anti-Semitic rhetoric persist and spread. This includes the propagation of untruths, the denial of atrocities, the tolerance of hate speech under the guise of free speech, the repetition of propaganda by some professors, and the falsehoods that anti-Zionism is anything other than a form of hatred against the Jewish community. Well, Cornell Vice President for University Relations, Joe Uh, Joel Molina, he said in a statement on Tuesday in response to law enforcement apprehending the suspect that the campus will remain in its heightened security status. America's major cities are increasingly childless, an ongoing trend that was only exacerbated by the emergence of remote work during the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. In addition, spiking crime rates, increased cost of living and rising housing prices have pushed families out of U.S. metro areas, according to Manhattan Institute fellow Robert Verbruggen, who conducted a report that measured the family friendliness of America's cities based on the data of 200 metro areas. A pandemic, a crime wave, and a growing ability of, uh, of knowledge worker, workers to do their jobs without living in urban centers have only contributed uh, to the decline of children's presence in cities, especially dense inner cores. Well, the cost of living emerged as the overwhelming reason for why certain metro areas attract more family migration. His findings also show an abundance of children in the middle of the country with noticeable stretches of child-starved regions on the coasts. As people become richer, families especially want more space, so they tend to go places where they can get more space and tend to leave more and more dense inner-city areas, he explained. Another dynamic that's come out since the pandemic has been that the rise of remote work, especially uh, if you have the ability to work from anywhere. Those forces that were pushing people into cities has weakened, but there are implications to this trend. A new report found higher education fails to teach the basics of American history. I suppose that's not really news. Instead, focusing on the moments that divide Americans while spending very little time on prosperity and unity. The report, directed by Arizona State University professor Donald Critchlow, shows many uh, introductory American history courses at universities across the country are not conveying basic knowledge to their students. Critchlow said that even though the Constitution was being discussed in some classes, it wasn't necessarily being discussed positively. And Jonathan Turley reports that Walt Disney once remarked, you reach a point where you just don't work for money. Well, for shareholders of Disney, the most common complaint in recent years is that the entire corporation appears to have reached that point in pushing woke movies that have bombed with consumers and a political flight with Florida, or rather a fight with Florida, that's already cost the corporation dearly. Well, at the heart of two recent controversies are free speech disputes. The company's new Snow White actress, Rachel Zegler, is publicly defending her right to trash the franchise's original storyline and characters, the beloved characters. In the meantime, 
meantime, the company is objecting that it's being punished for its own free speech in opposing Florida's popular parental rights law. Recently, Disney dropped all of its freedom claims against the state of Florida over the company's public opposition to the Parental Rights and Education Act. The only exception is its free speech claim that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has retaliated against the House of uh, Mouse for speaking as a company against the law. It has state litigation that is continuing on uh, uh, other claims. At the same time, Disney is facing another free speech controversy after Zegler used her casting as the new Snow White to denounce the entire premise and to appeal to the original 1937 movie, calling Prince Charming a presumptive stalker and promising to ditch the whole love interest. She told an interviewer that Snow White is not going to be saved by the prince and that she's not going to be dreaming about true love. What followed was a familiar groan to another Disney woke remake that seems to delight only Disney actors and diversity officers. Well, the problems with the film were magnified when even the dwarves seemed to give to get the axe after Game of Thrones star Peter Dinklage. He uh, expressed his disapproval for the film and objected to the very notion of any of the seven traditional figures making a reappearance. Well, soon after his objections, Disney posted a new vision of the dwarves as a happy band of male and female, racially diverse group of non-dwarves, except for one actor. The the, uh, backlash and the actor's strike has now resulted in a delay of the release of the remake for another year and the sudden reappearance of the original dwarves. Disney insists that the earlier actors were just stand-ins for the dwarves, which is a bit odd since the dwarves are digitally produced. Standing in for whom? For what? Well, in the end, Iger will have to decide if Disney is now so profitable that it has reached a point where you don't work for money. Well, Snow White and the shareholders may hold different views on that question. We'll continue to follow that rather interesting developing story. New Jersey Governor Murphy's taxpayer-funded Taylor Swift um, Entertainment is getting a bit of an eyebrow raise. Recent reporting from Politico exposed one of New Jersey Democrat Governor Phil Murphy used funds from the governor's office account provided by taxpayers to be used for official receptions, official residence, and other official expenses, but not to be used for personal perfect purposes. Roughly $12,000 was used from the account to pay for such things as food and drink, at a Taylor Swift concert and a number of sporting events at MetLife Stadium dating to um, as far back as 2018. According to Murphy's office, the taxpayer money will be reimbursed by the state's Democrat Party. The question is, why is this reimbursement taking so long? Again, started in 2018. And would it ever have been offered without media exposure? Well, Comer is claiming that Joe Biden got $40,000 from Brother James in laundered China funds. President Biden will meet President Xi Jinping face-to-face in San Francisco, the White House has confirmed, and a man in body armor with guns, extra magazines, and improvised explosives was found dead at a Colorado amusement park alongside a cryptic note. And L.A. County is, uh, wants its social workers to ask kids as young as 10 about their sexual orientation, after they, of course, explain what that even means. Well, on this day in history, 1604, William Shakespeare's tragedy Othello is first presented at Whitehall Palace in London. 1765, the Stamp Act, passed by the British Parliament, takes effect, prompting stiff resistance from, you guessed it, American colonists. 
1950, two Puerto Rican nationalists try to force their way onto Blair House in Washington, D.C., in a failed attempt to assassinate President Harry S. Truman. One of the pair is killed, another with a White House police officer. 1952, the United States detonates the first hydrogen bomb, codenamed Ivy Mike, in the Marshall Islands. 1968, the Motion Picture Association of America unveils its new voluntary film rating system, G for General, M for Mature, which would later change to GP, then PG, R for Restricted, and X, which would later change to NC-17 for adults only, as if 17 is adult. 1973, following President Richard Nixon's Saturday night massacre on October the 20th, Acting Attorney General Robert Bork appoints Leon Jaworski to be the new Watergate special prosecutor succeeding Archibald Cox. Bork had fired Cox under orders from Nixon after Attorney General Elliot Richardson and Deputy Attorney General William Ruckelshaus both resigned, refusing to follow Nixon's orders. It may have cost him a seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, Matthew Dodd. Dr. Dodd is Executive Director of Blessers of Israel. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. Yesterday, you might recall, we talked about the fact that the U.N. General Assembly is demanding Israel work toward a truce and ceasefire but refuses to condemn Hamas. Let me give you a little bit of that backstory. The U.N. General Assembly passed a resolution on Friday, and they demanded that Israel submit to a sustained humanitarian truce, leading to a cessation of hostilities. Now, resolutions that are adopted by the body are non-binding, but they are a reflection of global opinion. With a vote of 120 countries in favor, 14 against, and 44 abstaining, This one is already being cited as an authoritative decision that puts the U.S., Israel, and the other no votes on the wrong side of history. Or is this um, just another egregious form of um, the U.N.'s enduring anti-Israel bias while providing cover for Hamas? And I think it's worth noting that the... uh, EU countries joined Iran, Syria, and Russia in voting for this resolution that fails to name Hamas or specifically call for the release of hostages. There was a separate vote. The General Assembly failed to pass a resolution that would have specifically and directly condemned Hamas, uh, the perpetrators of the uh, massacre on October 7th. Um, and the organization that uses the uh, primary hospital in Gaza as their terrorist headquarters. Well, here to help us understand what all of this might mean in view of more significant issues and what the scriptures have to say is Matthew Dodd, who is a Ph.D. and executive director of Blessers of Israel. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Georgine. Well, this was a significant vote being taken. Let me just begin by asking you to comment on the U.N. General Assembly's demand that Israel work toward a truce and a ceasefire and uh, declining to hold Hamas responsible for its egregious acts against uh, Israel. Well, I think uh, on the one hand, I'm deeply, deeply grieved. On the other hand, I'm not surprised. Mm -hmm. Uh, As we have been talking about at Blessers of Israel, Um, we knew that there would be a pivot against Israel at some point. And the truth of the matter is uh, Israel's losing the narrative control. They're not able to control their narrative, and we're seeing a groundswell now pivot against Israel. And it's reflected in what's been said in the U.N. 
You know, it's interesting because the scripture has something to say about the nations standing against Israel, and we we know that that will come at some point. We don't know if this is the ultimate um, prelude to the battle that we know is coming, because scripture tells us. Your view on what this might mean in terms of the larger issues and what the scripture has to say about the nation of Israel standing against the whole world. Yeah, so... What you're referring to, I believe, is the Battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And there we are told specifically that there would be a coalition led by Russia, which would include Persia, Iran, Turkey, and other nations. And right now, I believe what we're seeing is this is not necessarily the Battle of Gog and Magog, but I believe the chess uh, board is being set for that battle. These alliances are coming together against Israel. And I I think it's important to also note that behind all of this is China. I believe many of these nations are emboldened to do what they're doing, like Russia, like Iran, uh, because they know that China has their back. And so we're seeing this groundswell now uh, with these BRICS nations. By the way, speaking of the BRICS nations, uh, the only one to abstain uh, all others voted for uh, was India. But Brazil voted for this resolution, Russia, China, and South Africa. Yeah, it really is uh, interesting to see how the world is being realigned. And as you pointed out, China is playing a major role in that. We know that Iran is a, uh, has used proxies for their interests in the region, uh, but they too, along with, uh, with uh, Tur- uh, Turkey and China, are realigning world powers, and this is a part of an effort that isn't just focused on Israel, but this certainly provides an opportunity that's being fully exploited. I agree. You know, uh, we need to remember that ultimately what does China want to do? They want to uh, be the global power by 2049. And so they are using all of these different actors to do just that. And I believe, whether it be Ukraine or what's happening between Israel and Hamas, it diverts the attention that the United States has towards Taiwan and China. It diverts that attention. And so there's only so many things that we can do as a country at one time. So with our attention being diverted, that gives China the opportunity to strengthen its stranglehold over these other areas. And also their dependence on China, since the United States seems to have withdrawn as the the leader of the world and left something of a vacuum. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And I think the United States now, uh, under this administration, is trying to reinsert itself. But I think after what happened in Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. that sent a message and that created a void. And now the United States is trying to quickly reinsert itself, but other nations are watching. They get the message. And what is happening with Ukraine, what is happening with Israel is sending a message as well. And I believe the other nations are saying, we don't buy it. And they are aligning now with what they see as the next uh, global power, which is China. You know, as I was praying for events as they're unfolding in Israel and praying for the peace of Jerusalem, I thought about uh, the fact that this presents an opportunity once again. As I study the Old Testament, uh, in times of battle and distress, Israel would turn once again to God. And my prayer has been 
that the nation of Israel would again look up and turn to God in the midst of what appears to be an overwhelming potential for battle on a variety of fronts, where the whole world seems to be aligned, with very few exceptions, against the nation of Israel. Do we see in Scripture, prior to the, the Gog and Magog that you made reference to earlier, that, that battle, do we see reference in Scripture where the nation of Israel turns once again to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and re- recognizes that their munitions are not sufficient, their training and security is insufficient, and ultimately they must uh, return to the God um, who has created the nation and has preserved the nation to this moment? Great question. What I see in, in Ezekiel and other prophecies is that Israel would be regathered in unbelief, and they won't come to belief in Messiah, in Jesus Christ, until the end of the tribulation period. So you'll have all of these cataclysmic events which are refining Israel and bringing them to the conclusion that Jesus is their Messiah. And it's at the end of the tribulation period when the Antichrist is bearing down a full assault on Israel that the Jews begin to cry out to Messiah and then he returns and delivers them from the hand of the Antichrist. How might we pray about events as they're unfolding? I I think there's a great deal of fear. The United States has taken a stand to support Israel, making the United States and her citizens around the globe, military personnel and uh, and assets more vulnerable. Uh, We see that Israel is facing the potential of a a protracted war with many fronts. How, How should we pray as believers in Jesus who take seriously the call to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Well, I think, number one, we need to, as, as citizens of the United States, but also citizens of heaven, number one, pray for our country. We need to strengthen the net, so to speak, within our country, and we need to pray for our leadership that they will make righteous and godly decisions in regards to the care of our nation. And as we are strengthened, then we can have and bring that strength to other places around the globe as well. Obviously, my heart breaks. Uh, when I look at what is going on, not only in Israel, but in other parts of the world, uh, even with the Palestinians, all those innocents that are there. And I mm-hmm. am praying that God will open the eyes of people, open their hearts to receive Jesus Christ, even in those areas where the gospel is forbidden. I believe God can reach out and minister to those who are crying out to him and reveal his son to them, and they would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Our world, if there was ever a time that needs revival, that the church would be the the light that the world needs, it's now. And if there ever ever was a time when the world needs Jesus Christ, I tell you, they need the Lord right now. This is the time. I believe this is a very, very urgent time, and I'm not trying to be sensational, but I believe there really is a call that we need to respond to as a church and we need to be about the business of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ because how will they know unless they hear? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, before we go, I just wanted to mention that Blessers of Israel produces a podcast on a regular basis in which you are responding to current events, the most recent which nations are against Israel and why. Uh, our listeners can access that podcast how? Channel 
Uh, we also have a channel on Rumble, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. You can also go to our website. You'll see all of our podcasts and articles listed there at blessers with an ORS dot org. All right. Well, um, Dr. Dodd, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure we'll have another conversation in the not-too-distant future. Thank you for the opportunity. Have a blessed day. You too. Bye-bye. Again, Dr. Matthew Dodd is Executive Director of Blessers of Israel. You can find their podcast at Blessers of Israel, and that's spelled B-L-E-S-S-O-R-S, blessersofisrael.org. Uh, Thank you so much. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, a conversation with Ryan Walker, Executive Vice President of Government Relations at the Heritage Foundation, on efforts to um, smear Speaker Johnson as a Christian nationalist. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Bible teaches that all people, men and women, are created in the image of God. But how can believers remain firmly rooted in the Imago Dei when culture is more confused than ever about issues of human dignity? Well, in a new book, Created in the Image of God, Applications and Implications for Our Cultural Confusion, David Dockery and Lauren McAfee and a team of expert collaborators bring clarity and guidance from a biblical perspective as they explore what it means to be made in the image of God. They explore questions at the forefront of our cultural confusion. Questions like what it means to be human, the importance of life, the significance of relationships, the meaning of human sexuality, the understanding of maleness and femaleness, and the looming questions of artificial intelligence and transhumanism. Well, joining us to talk about the book is one of the co-authors, co-editors, Lauren McAfee. She is a Ph.D. in progress with the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, a board chair and visionary of Stand for Life. She serves as ministry director for ministry investment at Hobby Lobby. She is the author of Only One Life. A Not What You Think, Legacy Study, and Beyond Our Control. She holds a Master of Arts in Pastoral Counseling and Theological Studies, as well as a Master of Theology. She and her husband have um, uh, two daughters, and they live in Oklahoma City. But today we have her by phone to talk about this uh, significant book that may help to clarify for us what Scripture teaches when it says that we are created in the image of God. The title of the book, Applications and Implications for Our Cultural Confusion. Thank you so much for joining us. You. We had a little bit of difficulty there. Can can you speak once again? I'm going to put you on hold, and maybe James, my producer, can um, can clear that up because we can't understand what's being said. In the introduction of the book, David Dockery writes, "Men and women are the highest forms of God's earthly creation. Indeed, the crowning work of God's creative activity." All other aspects of creation have been created for the purpose of serving men and women, whereas men and women are created to serve God and thus uh, theocentric. He goes on to uh, to write that God has created humans in his image and likeness because they are created in the image of God. They have rationality, morality, spirituality and personality. We're talking about the book created in the image of God and joining us to talk about that. We'll try again is uh, Lauren McAfee, who is a Ph.D. candidate um, and one of the editors of this important volume. I think we have you now. Hey, hopefully you can hear me now. (laughs) Yes, I certainly can. Thank you. And I apologize for that. We want to hear every word you say. (laughs) Well, this is such a significant uh, book because it reminds us of what the scriptures say in the context of our culture where many are confused. Let's begin with the notion of 
uh, men and women being created in the image of God. When we think about our sin nature, we may not understand what that means. What does it mean to be created in the image of God as the scripture teaches? Yeah, so whenever we look at the scripture, the very first chapter in Genesis mentions the creation account, and it beautifully describes, you know, God is speaking all of these things that we see in our created world into existence. And and then God pauses whenever he has created everything else except for humanity. He pauses and has a conversation among himself as the Trinity, and then he creates man and woman in his image. And so there's kind of this culmination, this climax of creation when God creates man and woman. And he distinctly says about man and woman that they were created in his image. And he, he didn't create anything else and say that, that it was in his image except for um, humanity. So there's this beautiful distinction that, that we see in the creation account that we are image bearers of God. And that doesn't mean, of course, that we are God, but it does mean that we have qualities that reflect God and his character. And so I think you just quoted uh, a wonderful quote from the book from Dr. Dockery, mm-hmm. where he mentioned some of those things that that means. It means we have rationality, morality, spirituality, personality. And it also means that we have identity, an identity that was set for us by God, um, that we have value because uh, we are image bearers of the very creator God. And so that's something that is inherent to every human that isn't based off of anything we can do ourselves. And so I think that gives great confidence in each, for each person to know that we have dignity and value and worth for who we are, regardless of what we can produce or how successful we can be or, or what others think of us, because it's not something that we, that, that value isn't given to us by others. It's given to us by God. And so that's a beautiful gift as well as the identity we, that we have from God when he, after the creation account, then calls us to exercise dominion over the earth and, and they're called to um, name the animals and, and work and to produce. And so that is also a part of who we are as image bearers is that we were created to create just like God created all of the earth. Now we have that aspect of us that we now do go and, and create in the world. And so being an image bearer, being uh, having the Imago Dei, the image of God, is a, a beautiful gift to believers. And it is something that should also be a gift to our world as we live that out well uh, and, and show dignity and respect to all people, regardless of, like I said, regardless of how the world might see them, we know that they are image bearers. And so we should treat everyone as such. And and that's, I think, yeah, a beautiful gift that our world um, can receive whenever believers really live that out well. Yeah, yeah. We Part of the, the, the subtitle of the book uh, references our cultural confusion. There seems to be a celebration of fluidity, the, the notion that things are not fixed, that we can determine certain things that you and I would uh, agree are fixed. We can determine them for ourselves. And that has resulted in a great deal of confusion. And I think it's, it's mm-hmm. presented a challenge for believers who know what the scriptures teach, but don't quite know how that, how to fit into um, this culture. Can you talk about how important it is, if in fact it is, for us to understand that the nature that God intends for us and the danger of failing to, to recognize what it means to be created in the image of God? Absolutely. So if we know that the Bible is truth and that what God has said in his word is truth. And so in order to see how flourishing in our lives is to live 
by truth and to follow God's word, then we need to know what it teaches. And it does have uh, teaching about what it means to be man, what it means to be woman, um, what our identity is as image bearers, and then also how to live our lives in a way that can honor him. And so there, there's a lot of confusion, like you mentioned, in our culture today around some of those very things, gender, identity. And uh, Katie, Dr. Katie McCoy is one of the authors that wrote a chapter for this book. So the book is comprised of a number of different essays that were written by um, professors and PhDs. And so these are experts in their field, each writing kind of theologically, ethically, and culturally about this topic. So even though they're professors and, and they're very smart people, it's very accessible. So I don't want that to mm-hmm. turn people away from getting this book created in the image of God. But Dr. Katie McCoy wrote an essay on what it means to be male and female. And she really does um, kind of remind us of the importance of recognizing this aspect of gender and the, the reality of male and female. And what does that mean to be male and female? And, and what does that mean for us as we're having conversations about things, even in the church or in culture, related to uh, what roles women can have in the church? And she says, you know, how can we even have that conversation if we don't know what it means to be a woman? So she does a really nice job of walking through a number of passages and giving believers confidence in looking at what does the scripture say about gender and how can we apply that to various issues and conversations that we see um, both in culture as well as in the church. And so hopefully it's an encouragement to those who might be having those questions and having those conversations where there is this confusion around the topic of gender and identity and how to navigate that and in a way that's full of grace as we do stand for truth. Yeah. And I think for for most believers, we understand what this the scripture teaches. How do we give voice to that in a culture where um, if you hold a view that's consistent with scripture, you're considered to be hateful? I think this book helps us mm-hmm. not only to think through these issues in the context of our culture, but also how to give voice to the truth of God's word in a way that um, is more likely to be received. And I think many of us are timid about how do we how do we do that well? And this certainly yeah. uh, provides a resource. I was just going to ask you about um, your collaborators. There's a consensus view that this is a biblical uh, view on the subject of being created in the image of God. Talk a little bit about how the book is structured and who some of these um, contributors are. Yeah, so... The book actually came from what was a conference. So my organization, Stand for Life, hosted a conference on this topic of being created in the image of God. And the the, the presentations that were given were just so rich that we, we knew this would be great content to be able to share with a broader audience. And so that's how the book came about. But Created in the Image of God does have um, about a dozen contributors. And as I mentioned, they're all you know, professors and experts in their field, and they each look at various aspects of this this doctrine of the Imago Dei applied to a particular lens. And so there's three sections. The first section is looking at what it means to be created in the image of God. Section two looks at the applications and impl- implications. So those kind of get more into details of, okay, what does that mean for us as humans in relationship? And what does that mean about embodiment? Um, what does that mean for sanctity of life and life in the womb? How do we think about that with gender, male and female? So those are some of the, the kind of topics and the culture, <laughs> culture side of things that are very relevant. And then part three is kind of looking at the confusion and trying to give some clarity. So you've got uh, something like John Stone Street, 
who writes a chapter on faithful living in our confused culture, and Dr. Robert Stewart, who kind of has an apologetics approach to try and help people think through how can we talk about this mm-hmm. as we're having conversations with um, either fellow believers or people that don't believe in, in what the Bible teaches, and we're trying to explain um, the truth in a way that is clear and also um, shows the beauty of who God is and how he created things to be. And, and ultimately, hopefully, will point to the gospel and the hope in knowing Christ and living in freedom of uh, living according to his word. So I, I wrote the final chapter along with my um, friend, Dan Darling, and we really hope to do that, kind of conclude by pointing to the beauty of human dignity according to God's word and how that can also point us to the gospel and the hope that we have in Christ. Yeah. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, the book is titled Created in the Image of God, Applications and Implications for Our Cultural Confusion. The book is published by Forefront Books. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with one of the co-editors of Created in the Image of God, Applications and Implications for Our Cultural Confusion. From the book, uh, reading, the confusion in this cultural moment is the result of what some refer to as the human condition, our sinful and restless alienation from God apart from Christ. The overall approach in this book Uh, reflects a consensus understanding that men and women have been created in God's image, that they have fallen and are influenced by sin, that Christ has provided redemption through his vicarious death and resurrection, and that there is hope in the promise of eternal life in Christ. Christ succeeded where Adam failed, allowing those who trust in him to enjoy and glorify him Forever. The book uh, consists of wise, thoughtful, and insightful contributors, again, created in the image of, of God, applications and implications for our cultural confusion. And my guest, uh, Lauren McAfee, is uh, one of the co-editors of the book. One of the um, subjects that you cover, and it's uh, a pretty hot topic in our culture today since the Supreme Court decision last year, is the sanctity of life. Scott Bay um, writes in the uh, section on applications and implications on the subject. Tell us a little bit about uh, the image of God, uh, that we are image bearers, and the sanctity of life, why it's important to understand the one in order to appreciate the other. Yeah, I think that the sanctity of life and, and kind of understanding why we care about that in light of what we see about all people being created in God's image and being and should be cared for and respected as image bearers means that we not only do care about life in the womb, which we do, and, and, and we should uh, seek to protect and care for life in the womb, um, but it also means that we care about the woman carrying that child. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of times when we think about the pro-life issue or sanctity of life issues, there's often this idea that we only, you know, or at least it can be portrayed that we only care about the child in the womb. But that's not to hold to the full understanding of what it means that all people are created in the image of God and that we care also about the woman who is facing maybe an unplanned pregnancy and would be considering an abortion. And so we, we don't believe in abortion because that is the wrongful taking of a life and, 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 and every life is precious and, and has dignity and value and should be given its chance at life. And so we, we care about caring well for women um, and, and the realities that she might be facing and seeing her for her full dignity and value and wanting to care for her as a human 
while also saying, but we also want to protect that life in the womb. And so Scott Ray does a really nice job mm-hmm. of, 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 kind of unpacking some of that nuance and helping us um, dive deeper into the beauty of this truth as it applies to the field of bioethics and life in the womb and what that means um, and how we can stand well for dignity at the beginning, human dignity at the beginning of life, the very beginning of life in the womb. Another section that may be surprising, but certainly is a rising uh, subject in our culture today is artificial intelligence, transhumanism, and the question of the person. Uh, Jacob Schatzer writes in this same section, the second section under applications and implications, writes on that subject. And we may not link an understanding of uh, the fact that we're created in God's image to these subjects. So help us to understand how understanding the one will help us to navigate the other. Yes. No, that's definitely a topic that I was so glad we got a chapter on uh-huh. because it will be continuing to emerge more and more, especially as we see things like AI and chat GPT um, becoming more common. There is going to be questions about what does it mean to be human in light of technology that can uh, imitate humans to some extent. And so how do we differentiate for ourselves what it means to be a human made in God's image when, you know, computers are writing papers just like us and writing forms of communication just like humans can. And so there there are all kinds of ways that this topic of the image of God and what that means for our identity will be applied in light of emerging technologies and how um, every generation younger than me is growing up uh, surrounded by this uh, technology and what that will mean for them as well in terms of their identity, even with things like social media, which now is not a new technology. um, But what does that mean for us and how we view ourselves in light of um, the biblical truth about our identity in Christ and and our image bareness in light of what we how we navigate social media. And I know that has been um, really harmful for a lot of young teens who have access to social media and suicide rates being so high. And, and all of these things where technology touches um, on our understanding of our value, our identity and our human dignity. So um, yeah, Jacob does a great job touching on that in one of these chapters, as you mentioned, his, this chapter being on artificial intelligence, transhumanism, and the question of the person. So personhood yeah. certainly matters and is a question that's very relevant for today. Now, we only have about two minutes left, but I wanted to ask you about another. You made mention of John Stone Street. He writes about faithful living in a culture of confusion. I think that's the desire of all of us is to live faithfully for Christ in the midst of confusion. What what help does he offer us as we commit ourselves to honoring Christ in the time that uh, that we're in? Yeah, John Stone Street is just really excellent and always points to great truths as an apologist that he is and just an excellent, excellent communicator, but also with the through the lens of knowing that we, we want to care well and love others as we communicate truth. And so he helps us navigate how can we present this understanding and how can we do that in a winsome way and point others to their source of dignity and how the church can be a light in the midst of confusing times on these topics. And he does a great job of helping believers navigate that for the church's story in this moment, in this time, in our culture. 
to live that out well. So his chapter is really a great application for the church specifically to apply this into our culture. We've highlighted only a few of the contributors, but the truth is every one of them has a great deal to say and offer to believers to better understand how being created in the image of God translates into life in the 21st century. Again, the book is titled Created in the Image of God, Applications and Implications for Our Cultural Confusion. Uh, Lauren McAfee, thank you so much for joining us to talk about it. Thanks for having me. It was great to be with you, Georgian. Appreciate it. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news coming up at the top of the hour, so stay with us. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Portland-only segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, House Speaker Mike Johnson, the Republican out of Louisiana, is hitting back at the Democrat-controlled Senate for criticizing the House GOP's standalone bill to aid Israel. They wanted to separate out that a large bill that the president announced about a week ago. Well, Republican leaders released the text of the emergency aid legislation on Monday, which includes just over $14 billion for Israel in its war against terror in Hamas. Well, that uh, that money would be offset by siphoning funds from the president's Inflation Reduction Act, specifically dollars allocated toward the IRS. If you ask people at the Pentagon under oath or in a moment of truth, they will tell you the greatest threat to our national security is our own debt, Johnson said in an interview yesterday. It is in our national interest to support our great ally and friend Israel in their time of need. But we also have to keep our focus on our own financial stability. And so those things must happen simultaneously, end quote. Well, the bill separates Israeli aid from Biden's original request of $106 billion in supplemental aid, which also includes money for Ukraine and the southern border. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer criticized Johnson's bill on the Senate floor on Tuesday. The senator called the package woefully inadequate and denounced its offset provisions as poison pills that increase the deficit and help wealthy tax cheats avoid paying their fair share. Well, Johnson responded in an interview on Wednesday saying, I would refer uh, Senator Schumer and anyone else who's a critic of this to the Treasury report that came out this week that indicates that we're going to have to borrow $1.6 trillion for the next six months to get the government in operation, end quote. Well, Johnson said the House would uh, vote on the Israeli bill on Thursday or Friday. Well, the National Muslim Democratic Council is threatening to tank President Biden's reelection if he doesn't call for an Israeli ceasefire against Palestine, as they referred to the uh, Gaza Strip. Well, Muslim and Arab American groups with the power to affect election results in swing states, they're threatening to tank the president's reelection chances if he doesn't call for that ceasefire by 5 p.m. on Tuesday. Well, the National Muslim Democratic Council, which includes Democratic Party leaders from swing states like Michigan, Pennsylvania and Ohio, they promised in an open letter to the president and Democratic leadership to withhold support from any candidate or politician that does not advocate for a ceasefire. Concerns that the president and the administration have been too pro-Israel are growing as the president continues to pledge his support to Israel during their war with the terrorist organization Hamas. A Pakistani senator posted an image of Hitler with a caption, at least now the world knows why he did what he did. This is so disturbing. This isn't coming out of some Eastern Europe enclave. This is right here uh, in our own um, uh, country. 
An Oxford-educated Pakistani senator sparked outrage today by sharing a photo of Adolf Hitler alongside the message I just uh, mentioned. He says in his biography on X, formerly known as Twitter, that he's received doctorates from New York, um, Oxford University of uh, College London, has frequently shared his views about the conflict in the Middle East. But a post on Sunday morning sparked a huge backlash with X deleting the statement as it violated the social media site's rules. Well, the post featured an image of Hitler posing in his Nazi uniform and a message which appeared to reference the murder of six million Jews in the Holocaust. Dr. Khan, who represents the Pakistan Muslim League Party, wrote, at least now the world knows what he did and why he did it. Gaza genocide. Well, he has made several posts condemning Israel over the past few weeks, repeatedly uh, calling for Jewish nation, to, uh, calling the Jewish nation a terrorist state and comparing the government to that of the Nazis. Well, terrorist threats against the U.S. reached a whole other level after the Hamas attack on Israel. FBI Director Christopher Wray uh, said, uh, speaking to Congress on Tuesday, saying the big players in terrorism have all renewed calls to attack America and its interests. He said the level of threats has heightened since the president took office, though U.S. law enforcement is better prepared to deal with them. Simon Ateba says that FBI Director Ray says that Iran has made assassination attempts against dissidents and high-ranking current and former U.S. government officials, including right here on American soil. Tony Saruga points out that rarely can I guarantee the intelligence. Many times just releasing it in the wild can stop a false flag or genuine attack. But with as close to 100 percent confidence as possible, there will be multiple terrorist attacks in the U.S. Well, the U.N. human rights director in New York resigned in protest of U.S. aid to uh, Israel, Craig Makahiber, or something very like that, United Nations Human Rights Office Director in New York, has resigned from his position in protest of Israel's counterattacks in the Gaza Strip, calling it a textbook case of genocide. Hmm. I'd like to find that particular textbook. The European ethno-nationalist settler colonial project in Palestine has entered its final phase toward the expedited destruction of the last remnants of indigenous Palestinian life in Palestine, he said in a letter to Volker Turk, High Commissioner of Human Rights. What's more, the governments of the United States, United Kingdom, and much of Europe are wholly complicit in this horrific assault, he went on to write. Well, UN Human Rights New York Office Director resigned in protest over the timidity of um, key parts of the UN system on issues pertaining to Palestinian human rights. In the letter to Volker Turk, he says this is a textbook case and has stepped away from his high-profile position. Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas does not know if pro-Hamas individuals are in the country and should have their visas revoked under questioning from Republican Senator Josh Hawley on Tuesday during a hearing in front of the Senate Homeland Security Committee. Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, he refused to take a position on whether pro-Hamas individuals in the country on a visa should be sent back to their home countries. Mayorkas repeatedly referred to this situation as a legal matter and would not give a moral opinion on the situation. Hawley's questioning comes as pro-Hamas, pro-Jew killing rallies have broken out on college campuses across the country. Over the weekend, Jewish students at New York University were forced to lock themselves in the library at um, New York University. 
uh, and were offered a place to hide in the attic as Hamas supporters screamed and chanted and attempted to enter the facility. This is right here in the United States, New York University. Conservative War Machine points out that DHS Secretary Mayorkas refuses to answer Josh Hawley's question about whether the student uh, uh, visas of pro-Hamas foreign nationals should have their visas revoked. Apparently, cornering uh, Jewish Americans in a university library is acceptable. Karine Jean-Pierre, White House spokesperson, refused to call pro-Hamas protesters extremists. The White House press secretary has not had the best track record when it comes to making assurances from the podium that the administration is committed to not only fighting back against anti-Semitism, but also speaking clearly to concerns about pro-Hamas protests going on around the country. The press secretary began Monday's briefing with what may have been her strongest condemnation of anti-Semitism yet, but that didn't carry over to being able to speak to concerns about such protests, calling for the extermination and annihilation of the Jews. Does President Biden think the anti-Israel protests in the country are extremists? Well, Kareem Jean-Pierre, White House um, press secretary, wouldn't say. Katie Pavlich points out that while the White House is rightfully condemning anti-Semitism, good for them, they won't say pro-Hamas uh, protesters are extremists. And we're talking about not pro-Palestinian um, demonstrations, but those who are pro-Hamas and call for the annihilation and the destruction of the Jews. They reserve that descriptor for Republicans. Mike Johnson introduced legislation to remove $14.3 billion of funding from the IRS to send the aid to Israel. And when Mike Johnson uh, took to the speaker's gavel, he set forth a list of priorities that seemed fairly straightforward. Among the first items on his list was passing an aid package for Israel while finding ways to reduce spending. He quickly moved to make good on that, working with the GOP majority to draw up a bill that would send $14.3 billion to Israel while rolling back the budget for the IRS. The ink wasn't even dry on the proposal before Democrats and their faithful media stenographers began blasting Johnson, accusing him of politicizing the proposed aid package. And Joe Biden has already threatened to veto the bill if it somehow makes it out of the House and the Senate. The new GOP bill, according to the CBS, is slated for consideration by the Rules Committee when the House returns on Wednesday, Thursday or Friday, likely to take it up with a vote in the full chamber expected as early as this week. If the bill passes the GOP-controlled House, the IRS provisions are all but guaranteed to be rejected by the Democrat-led Senate and the White House, setting up a clash over how to approve Israel aid. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, New York City is planning to house illegals in the Brooklyn airstrip. Uh, New York City is moving forward with plans to open the shelter for 2,000 migrants at an airfield in Brooklyn, despite concerns that the situation will uh, be a fire hazard. The city is opening a massive migrant shelter at Floyd Bennett Field in southeast Brooklyn. However, the FDNY and other city agencies recently inspected the airfield and flagged a number of safety concerns, including that fire hydrants are far away, older and largely not reliable. The airfield, which was used by the military, was converted into a national park. The housing development for the illegal immigrants would sleep around 500 families with children in huge one-story tents located on runway 19. It would also include a migrant processing center. The plan 
ban reportedly allows illegal migrants to bring e-bikes, which require lithium batteries and have caused fires. Might want to think that one through. Christians are rallying in support of abortion in Ohio. The pastor of a church in Columbus, Ohio, has been appearing in TV ads to voice his support for Ohio's Issue 1. Issue 1 is a November 7th ballot initiative to change the Constitution in the state of Ohio to allow abortion during all nine months of pregnancy. In the ad, Reverend Tim Ahrens of First Congregational United Church of Christ reads from the Gospel of Matthew, Do not judge and you will not be judged. Okay, this isn't really a matter of judgment. It's a matter of law and the value of human life. But that said, he then goes on to explain that he counsels families in all different circumstances. And it is important that they have the freedom to make decisions that are best for their family without government interference. Apparently, best interest of a portion of their family, disregarding the interests of at least one member. A week remains before Ohio voters decide whether the state will project Access to abortion rights, all nine months of pregnancy, both pro-life supporters and abortion activists are flooding the state with advertising, pushing their stances. An organization called Catholics for Choice has set up billboards throughout the state encouraging Catholics to support the abortion referendum. President Biden threatened to veto the House Israel bill, as mentioned, and Hamas now allows Americans to leave Gaza. Now, these are not hostages. These are Americans who are doing humanitarian work in the Gaza Strip. And a weird reinforcement of its own propagandists claim that the Gaza Strip is an open air prison. Hamas has been imprisoning hundreds of Americans there, blocking them from leaving the territory through the Rafah crossing that connects Gaza to Egypt. Well, that changed earlier today. However, with a deal hammered out among the U.S. State Department, Gutter, and Egypt, as CBS News reported, hundreds of foreign passport holders and the wounded trapped in Gaza started leaving the war-torn territory on Wednesday as the um, Rafah border crossing to Egypt opened to them for the first time since October 7th and the attacks on Israel from Hamas. The opening clears the way for some 545 foreigners and dual nation, uh, nationals uh, to leave, as well as injured Gazans seeking medical attention. According to the Hamas-controlled Gaza Health Ministry, which is Hamas, those heading through the um, the crossing include some of the more than 15,000 wounded in retaliatory Israeli strikes, which the ministry says have killed more than 8,500 people, two-thirds of them women and children. Meanwhile, 15 Israeli Defense Force soldiers have been killed thus far. Elon Musk says Republicans were suppressed 10 times more than Democrats. We knew the social media censors had it out for the right, but we didn't know it was that bad. Well, during a recent appearance on the Joe Rogan experience, ex-owner Elon Musk shared the grim news. The degree to which Twitter was simply an arm of the government was not well understood by the public, he said, when asked by Rogan about the transparency efforts of the Twitter files, which were released in late 2022 and early 2023. Musk said Twitter was propped up and compared it to Soviet news agency Pravda, saying that Twitter was a state publication. As for where Twitter drew the censorship line, Musk's assessment is even more grim. There was basically oppression of any views that would even, I would say, be considered middle of the road, but certainly anything on the right. And I'm not talking about the far right. I'm just talking about mildly right. 
Uh, granted that uh, Musk isn't a perfect messenger for free speech. He's a bit too cozy and accommodating with um, China for that. But it's hard to imagine what conservative speech would be uh, would be like today had the Tesla billionaire not put his money where his mouth is uh, last year. Maine law enforcement was alerted to the assailant that took the lives of far too many in that state. And the fallout from the mass murder in Maine last week that left 18 people dead and 13 wounded. It was learned that weeks prior to the assailant's attack, the U.S. Army Reserve had alerted local law enforcement officials to veiled threats he had made against the Army base. Uh, The county sheriff, Joel uh, Mary, responded to the warning by sending officers to the uh, a threat maker's home, but were unable to locate him. Uh, Mary issued a statewide awareness alert. Receiving the alert, the police chief, Jack Clements, he responded by sending officers to patrol the local army base for two weeks as it was the uh, presumed target of the threat. However, the guy never showed up, Clement observed. Well, the problem, Clement contends, was that the alert was a generic thing that came out saying, hey, you know, we've got some reports that this guy made some veiled threats. And that was about it. He added that his department never came in contact with the suspect, never received any phone calls from the reserve center saying, hey, we got somebody who is causing a problem. We never got anything, he said. Unfortunately, realizing that the system doesn't always work causes them to push harder for wider um, uh, controls. Well, Yale's Holocaust denial, the nation's oldest independent student newspaper, the Yale Daily News, was recently accused of Holocaust denial after it edited an article submitted by sophomore Yale student Sahar Tarak. Tarak, who is no stranger to writing as she serves as an editor of the Yale Free Press, responded to pro-Palestinian protesters celebrating Hamas's murderous October 7th attack on innocent Israelis with an article titled, Is uh, Yaleys for Palestine a Hate Group? Well, in her article, she observed that Hamas terrorists had raped and beheaded some victims. Well, that factual information was evidently a bridge too far for the Yale Daily News. As editors removed uh, the references to rapes and beheadings and included a note stating, this column has been edited to remove unsubstantiated claims that Hamas raped women and beheaded men. And that I would add to that children and infants. Well, the fact of the matter is there are multiple credible reports of rapes and beheadings, as well as evidence on the bodies of victims of torture and rape carried out by Hamas terrorists. To deny this is to deny truth in favor of pushing a false narrative that paints Hamas as freedom fighters and not as the inhumane terrorists that they actually are. In other news, China has scrubbed Israel from its online maps. Evidently, for those living in China, the nation of Israel no longer exists, at least on online maps. Searching the world map online in China ever since Hamas's October 7th attack, the name Israel failed to show up. Yet nations like Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon are present and accurately noted. The fact of the matter is uh, that Beijing has long played these political games with maps. For example, earlier this year, India leveled an official complaint against China over a so-called standard map, wherein a part of India's territory that Beijing has laid claim to just happened to be depicted as part of China. In this latest move of scrubbing Israel, Beijing is placating its larger trade partner in the Middle East, Iran. By the way, China still refuses to recognize Taiwan as a separate nation and pressures the rest of the world to follow suit. Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank uh, James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.